Just a couple of things before we get started. We're getting into prophecy. Prophecy is a portion of Scripture, a major portion of Scripture that deals with future events. Okay? And in many respects, though we see things from this side of the cross, we're in the same position that the Old Testament prophets were, like Daniel and Zechariah and others who were given revelation but weren't able to necessarily understand or see all the details. And so it would behoove us never to be dogmatic about the finer details of prophecy. Okay? There, are, there is room for legitimate, Bible-believing, Christ-loving Christians to disagree on the finer points of doctrine. Okay? Particularly where it deals with prophecy. So I just want to make sure everybody understands that as I share my convictions on these things, I'm just calling them as I see it, okay? I'm just calling it as I see it, not only in these Scriptures taken in context, but as revealed to us in the rest of Scripture. So we can have a good idea about we can know general things for sure that have been revealed, and we can figure out and see specific things. But let's don't let the finer points of prophetic doctrine cause division, uh, not only within this body, but between us and other Christians. I think there are major points of prophetic doctrine where disagreement can be dangerous, and it can lead to heresy. I think when you hold a position that the church is a spiritual replacement of Israel, and that the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are spiritually fulfilled in the church. I believe you can be saved and be used of God holding that position, but it's a dangerous position that's easily led off into error. You can see and understand that the church has compromised today, that the remnant is very small, and much of what calls itself Christianity is false and that many in the churches are unsaved. You can see and understand these truths, but be careful with it. Because before you know it, you can start thinking you're the only true church. You're the only one holding the truth. And then a salvation by grace through faith quickly becomes a salvation by works. Okay? We need to be careful and guard these things we talk about with humility, with discussion, and continual searching of the Scriptures to see whether these things are so. You know, we can take positions that we're talking about in here to the extreme. I was given a book uh, recently about called The Controversy in Zion, and I was told it's a great book that discusses the relationship between Israel and the church and the things happening with Israel here in these last days. And there's a lot of good truth in there as I've been thumbing through it. But I stumbled on a portion of the book that began to talk about Christians who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture are Christians that look at Israel and say the time of Jacob's trouble is Jacob's problem and it doesn't concern me, so I could care less. Well, first of all, I believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture and I don't believe that about the children of Israel. I don't believe that it's their problem. I believe it's something so dire on the horizon that it necessitates us to go out and share the gospel with the Jewish people. Not just that some of them may be saved and be part of the church, but that they can be prepared uh, to remember these things when that time comes. And so you, you begin to start seeing this denial and, and, and people that believe this doctrine are, are misguided. And then all of the Scriptures cited are right there in the Gospels and never once do we go to the epistles. We have to be careful taking one portion of Scripture and ignoring the rest of the counsel of Scripture. More error has resulted from looking and zeroing in on the red letters in the Gospels and forgetting the rest of the epistles than anywhere else. Jesus' words in the Gospels had a context, and that context often involved the people of Israel. And when we forget about the words of Jesus as given to Paul and the apostles, and the epistles that were specifically written for the church, we can fall into error. Now what I've seen is I've began to progress through this text, just thumbing through it, because when I see things like that, I'm not going to take my time to read it. That's just the way I am. I would rather read things that are going to edify me. But what I've seen is this movement toward an idea that salvation 
is tied toward how we support Israel. Now that's just as much a damnable heresy as the idea that salvation comes through humanitarian aid for uh, the poor. Salvation doesn't come through these things. We aren't saved because we believe that Israel is for the people of Israel and that the Palestinians shouldn't be there. We're not saved by that. Okay? We're not saved if we um, um, stand for freedom and love and everybody do whatever they want to do. We're saved by grace through faith. And it's funny how even conservative positions, not just liberal positions, can quickly lead to false doctrine. There's a very... Uh, uh, there's a, there's a, a group of believers in Texas that's growing, that's becoming well-known in a little place called Wells, Texas. Some of the young men in their 20s that call themselves elders of this church, I, I hate to admit that I'm familiar with and I've been in evangelism situations where we have preached together. The people in Wells, Texas are a cult, okay? And so if any of you have heard of that or get pointed toward that, there's a lot of things on the surface that make it look like these are Christians just trying to get back to New Testament simplicity and, 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 and teach the biblical truth in the face of compromise. But when you look deeper, what you see is a work salvation. What you see is what the Bible warns concerning novices that are put in a position of ministry. Terrible pride. And what has happened is a disdain and a discouragement over the darkness of the times has led to the idea, very Mormon-like, that we are the true church and everyone else is false. So be careful. People that hold conservative positions that we like could be roads to damnable heresy. It's not just the liberal side of the political aisle or the theological aisle that can be dangerous. It can be the conservative side as well. That's why we cannot be governed by a theological system. We must be governed by the Scriptures. Mm. Wells, Texas is a cult. Stay away from it. Dangerous. Wicked. Okay? People that would... Uh, the, the pro, there, there are elements of a pro-Israel uh, Christian perspective that leads to error and heresy. The Hebrew Roots Movement that says true Christians will get back to observing Hebrew culture and Jewish law. That's a damnable heresy. Okay? The idea that anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, is saved by keeping the Torah is a damnable heresy that Paul wrote and preached against in the book of Galatians. So we just need to always be careful as we tread prophecy. And so I wanted to just lay that out today as we get into some things. I have my opinions about what some of these judgments are and what they look like. But what we can stand certain upon is that Christ is coming back for His church. That is very biblical. That, that, that the church will be taken out of this world and then God will turn again His attention to Israel to fulfill the promises made to her, to the fathers. And that in the end, despite how Israel is brought to the brink of extinction, Jesus Christ will step in and save her. The nation will wake up. And in that day, all Israel will be saved. And Christ will come back, overthrow evil, the kingdom of the beast. And He will set up a kingdom to rule and reign for a thousand years. And His saints with Him. To me, there's no debate about those things. They're clearly stated in the Scriptures. And what else is also clearly stated is despite the evil and the wickedness and the power of Satan and the power of, of, uh, of, of lies and the power of deception, there's a sovereign God that governs all. And these things only operate according to His plan. And in the end, no one will be able to say, how can a benevolent God tolerate evil? In the end, everyone will understand that only a benevolent God could overthrow evil and set up a kingdom of righteousness. And without evil, there would be no glory for those that have put their trust in the Lord to see His salvation and His mighty arm. So those are just things that I think should preface our discussion about Revelation. We should always approach these difficult parts of Scripture. I don't think it's as difficult as some people say it is, but it particularly prophecy with a humble spirit. And when God reveals to us truth that so many have missed uh, in these dark days, it's 
humility with which we should carry that truth. And God forbid that as a house church, as those that see the need to come out from what is fake and false and so much of what is wrong with the modern day churchianity, may we never come to the place where we think we are the only true representatives of the New Testament church. May we never come to the place where we think only a house church is the true body of Christ. You know, may we never come to the place where we think every single person in a particular church building or in a particular church is a false convert. Even Revelation teaches us that in the worst of places, uh, in terms of dead churches, that still remains a remnant. Look at the letter to Thyatira. Look at the letter to Sardis. And sometimes that remnant deserves a rebuke. But let's never fall into the trap of thinking we are somehow above um, every other believer that has, true believer that has similar struggles and similar difficulties trying to understand the deep truths of Scripture. But we can find truth in the Scriptures and through the help of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we're here to do. So I just wanted to preface that uh, and be constantly reminded that we should be on guard against deceiving lines of thought from both sides of the theological and political spectrum. Turn to Revelation 9. Um, we have been talking about the sixth trumpet judgment. And I just want to start with verses 18 and 19. Where I ended last week is, I believe that this army of supernatural, led by, by fallen angels, this army of the supernatural cavalry of 200 million of what I believe are fallen angels that are taken or, or fallen with Satan from heaven. Again, this is the aftermath of the war in heaven that's described in the background of Revelation 12. I believe that this is probably an invisible thing that during the days of judgment, men won't be able to see as they would see a modern army marching on a battlefield. This judgment, this infernal destruction, unlike the fifth trumpet, purposes to kill a third of the world's population, okay? And coupled with the fourth seal, we have an entire half of the world's population destroyed, okay? I believe this is a devil's army, a supernatural army, an invisible army, and I think there's scriptural pre precedence for this. Supernatural armies are not unknown in Scripture. Armies that only some can see, and sometimes armies that no one can see, but they are there. I believe there are spiritual armies today that exist behind human government, they exist behind human armies, and they are very, very active, both demonic and angelic. And all of this happens under the sovereign governance of God. There's a war in the spiritual. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Some people take that too far and think there's a demon under every rock and it quickly falls into witchcraft. But spiritual warfare is real. The Bible tells us how to arm ourselves against it. The Bible tells us what to do in light of it. The Bible tells us how to fall upon the Lord and to wear the armor of God. And it tells us that we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. But let's look at a couple of neat stories in the Old Testament. I don't know how far we'll get this morning, but I like to go back and see some of these examples uh, here of invisible supernatural armies. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. This is a real interesting um, little story that takes place during the days of the northern and southern kingdoms, during the days of the ministry of the prophet Elisha, when the northern kingdom of Israel was hell-bent on idolatry. and Samaria was the capital Ahab had introduced Baal worship and had married wicked Jezebel and everything just fell apart from that point on to where Israel, the northern kingdom, was wholly turned to idolatry for most of her existence. But during this um, chapter of that history, it's, it's Elisha's ministry and the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, had been harassing the northern kingdom and bands of Syrian troops had been coming in to Israel and burning towns and wreaking havoc, okay? And so 
Um, as we get in, as we're in Second Kings chapter six, these Syrian bands began to go after Israel's army, and Israel's army somehow was getting advanced knowledge of where the Syrian troops were located and how they were coming, and they would just move. So that when the Syrian bands came, Israel wasn't there. They weren't where they were supposed to be. And it was like, who in the world is telling them our plans? And so the king of Assyria was very uh, upset and um, wanted to find out um, who was the source of this betrayal. And so um, one of the servants of the king said, No, I believe Elisha is responsible, he's a prophet. And he's telling the king of Israel, even the secrets you whisper in your bedchamber. So we get to verse 13, and the king of Syria commands this servant to go and find Elisha and bring him back. Okay? And so verse 13 of chapter 6, and he said, Go and spy where he or Elisha is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he, this is the king of Syria, thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city round about. So the Syrian army with a great host came and camped around the city where Elisha was residing. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? Or what can we do? We're in big trouble. And he, which is Elisha here, answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now look at verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So there was a supernatural angelic army surrounding Elisha in that city, protecting it from the host of the Syrians. But it was an invisible army. And the only way that the servant of Elisha could see is if God opened his eyes. We have an invisible, supernatural, angelic army here that is protecting Elisha and God's people. If we go on to read, it says, When they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. This is not, as you read the context, this isn't literal blindness in the sense of they couldn't see. It was blindness to be able to see and understand where they were or where they were going. It would be similar to a blindness that can fall upon somebody if they're hiking in the woods and all of a sudden the very trail they came down looks totally unfamiliar and they become extremely turned around and start walking in the wrong direction thinking they're going back where they came from. That's a blindness that happens here. And this Syrian army, this physical army, was struck with that blindness by the angel of the Lord and the army that he led. And Elisha said to the Syrians, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And so they were blinded also to the identity of Elisha. And so Elisha was able to say, Come on, I'll take you where, where you want to go. But he led them to Samaria, which was the capital of Israel. And it came to pass then that when they were coming to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. So Elijah just led this Syrian host into Samaria so that the army of Israel could surround them and capture them. And they didn't have the discernment or the sight to see what was happening. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with the sword and with the bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. And so it was a spiritual, invisible army that affected a solution to this problem. 
and it didn't even result in bloodshed in this occasion. God opened the eyes of the servant to show him a spiritual army, and then He blinded the eyes of the Syrians and brought them right into the midst of the, the, the Israel's army, and then as a result, they had their eyes open to truth, and they went back and never harassed or sent bands to harass Israel anymore. Um, if you continue reading uh, through the chapter into chapter 7, you'll see that later this angered Ben-Hadad, the, the king of Syria, and so he brought his army later to Samaria and besieged the city. And as a result of this siege, there was a terrible economic collapse and there, people were starving, there was nothing to eat, there was nothing to drink in the city of Samaria during this siege. And it was so bad that they were selling donkeys' heads or asses' heads to eat for an expensive price. And they were selling bird poop or dove's dung at a terribly expensive price for fuel and to eat. Okay? The king was walking on the parapet of the city one day and saw two women arguing. And he wanted to know what in the heck's going on. And the one lady says, we had an agreement. Yesterday we boiled my son and ate him. And now she's supposed to give up her son that we can boil and eat today. And she won't do it. And the king's just like, what in the world? He rents his garment and puts ashes on his head. And they realize they're in deep, terrible, terrible trouble. And the king gets so angry that he says, I want Elisha and I want his head. He is responsible for this siege. Well, long story short, when they came to get Elisha, he said, look, tomorrow, tomorrow about this time in Jerusalem, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a single shekel and two measures of barley for a single shekel in the gate of Samaria. By tomorrow this time, there won't be a siege and there won't be a famine and there won't be inflation. And the guy laughed and didn't believe it and said, even if God opened the windows of heaven, this couldn't happen. And as a result, Elijah told this unbelieving man that you're not going to be able to partake of these blessings. And then as the story goes, there were some lepers hanging around outside the city and this great Syrian camp, they noticed, was all of a sudden empty. There was no one there. All the weapons, all the provender, all the food, all of the, uh, uh, the treasures were there, but the men were gone. Okay? And... Why? It says the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise. A noise of chariots, a noise of horses, the noise of a great army, a spiritual army. They were allowed to hear the noise. And what did they do? It tells us in 2 Kings 7 that um, they thought, oh my goodness, the kings of Israel have hired the Hittite army, the Assyrians against us, and so, or the Egyptians and so it says that they arose in the twilight in the evening and they simply fled uh, for their lives. The entire army went missing. Couldn't be found. A missing 411 case in Israel, per se. But the heart of that was a spiritual army. And one man was allowed to see it with his eyes and another host of Syrians was allowed to hear it with their ears. And as a result, in a single day, what was a terrible famine and a terrible situation in Samaria turned into a huge price drop. If we think the gas is dropping in price pretty significantly, what if it went from 375 to 199 in a single day? That's what happened. And everything that was prophesied came true. And again, it was a result of a spiritual army. Turn to 2 Kings 19. The Bible says in Romans, and I think in one of the Corinthian letters, that these things, these histories were written for our admonition so that we could learn from them. I like reading these military stories in particular. 2 Kings 19.35. This is about when the uh, Sennacherib and the Assyrian army, the great Assyrian army, comes to Jerusalem and they have mocked King Hezekiah. And they have mocked the kingdom of Judah and said, you know, you're not going to be able to save yourselves from us. Your God is not going to be able to save you from us. Look what we've done to Egypt. Look what we've done to uh, Syria. Look what we've done to Israel. And we, we read about Hezekiah taking that mocking letter from Rabshakeh, the ambassador to the king of Assyria, and laying it out before the Lord and calling upon the Lord to intervene. And God did intervene. How did He intervene? 
This is written about in Isaiah as well. It says in chapter 19, verse 35, And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. A hundred and eighty-five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So here we have an army destroyed, not driven off, not brought into captivity, but destroyed or slaughtered by an angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Christ, I believe. But here we have another spiritual army per se, an army of one that destroys a natural army, and there's no explanation. There's no visible way to know or understand how they died. They're just dead. No one saw a battle. No one heard a battle. They were just dead. And as a result, Sennacherib departed and returned back to the capital city of Nineveh, and he never came back. And then he was murdered not long after that by members of his own household. Turn to Judges. Judges chapter 7. These are all angelic armies, spiritual armies. Judges chapter 7, we're into the life of Gideon and the great story of Gideon's 300 and their victory over the Midianites. It really wasn't the army of Gideon that affected a victory. It was an army of the Lord per se. Judges 7, 21 and 22 And they stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled. And the three hundred blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Beth Shittah in Zerarath, and to the border of Abel Melohat unto Tabath. Okay, so what? The Lord set every man against himself. And so here we have a spiritual entity causing men to swing their swords in certain directions and to fight against themselves. And that's what destroyed the Midianites and caused them to flee. Gideon, his 300, blew horns and, and watched, basically. But we had a supernatural military element overthrowing the formidable Midianites. And how was it done? God introduced confusion. God used confusion. Well, you might say, wait a minute. God's not the author of confusion. We need to be careful how we use that verse. God is the author of confusion to some and not the author of confusion to others. Let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 14.33 I just don't want you to think I'm contradicting myself. God was the author of confusion in the army of the Midianites. And oftentimes when it comes to wicked nations and those that have turned their back on God or turned their back on the truth, confusion of face, as it's called in Daniel, is a judgment from God. But wait a minute, God's not the author of confusion. He's not to certain, but He is to others. 1 Corinthians 14.33 for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. When it comes to believers, when it comes to the church, God is not the author of confusion. So if God's will per se, that you have supposedly discerned in your life, results in confusion in your life as a believer or results in confusion in the body of Christ. It is not of God. Amen. I don't care what you say. I don't care how many tears you cry. I don't care what Scriptures you cherry pick and take out of context. God is not the author of confusion in, amongst the saints in the church. But when confusion rules your life, and you're one who has turned your back on the law of the Lord, you're one who's not interested in the things of God, you're one who mocks God, you're one who cares not for the things of God, then confusion is a judgment from God. Particularly upon nations. Okay, Confusion of face is what it's called in the book of Ezra. Confusion of face is what it's called in Daniel. Confusion of face 
is from God and it's what we see in our country today. The fact that the headlines two years out from a presidential election when the Republican Party now holds a majority in both houses of Congress, the fact that the headlines are zeroing in on potential presidential candidates that may have an R beside their name, but they're no different than what we have now. And the fact that conservatives and patriotic Americans and so-called Christians are all excited about fools like Jeb Bush or Mitt Romney who claim to stand for conservative principles, that is judgment from God. That's confusion of faith. Anybody that thinks that Jeb Bush is the answer to the problems for this country is a fool and is under the judgment of God. Anybody, any Christian that thinks a Mormon in the position of the presidency, we didn't learn once, so now we're going to repeat the same mistakes, it is confusion of faith. And guys, it's kind of liberating for us because two years out, we can relax. I don't have to crank my car and drive to the polls two years from now. I'm not going to waste my time unless something radically changes. The idea that we think protecting American society and protected in protecting freedom is linked to turning a blind eye to Islamic terrorism is judgment from God. It's confusion of face. When God judges a nation with confusion of face, they cannot make decisions that result in prosperity, victory, or success. They can't do it. Just like these... Syrian armies and the Midianites and stuff. You know, the army couldn't even know where it was marching and ended up surrounded by their enemies. That is where we're at today. And all we can do is follow the example of Ezra and Daniel and pray to God. Repent of our sins and trust Him, not put our trust in earthly circumstances. So, these supernatural armies or these supernatural entities often affected confusion and that confusion was judgment enough to accomplish God's purposes. I believe that during the, the sixth trumpet judgment, not only will this army be slaughtering a third of the world's population, but it will affect great confusion on those that remain. Not knowing where it came from or what it's doing. Not even able to understand that the very devils they worship are responsible for the slaughter of a third of mankind. Confusion of face. God is not the author of confusion in the church, but God is the author of judgment that brings confusion in a wicked world. Let's make sure we understand those things. And be very careful. If the fruit of your actions as a believer affects confusion in the body of Christ, then you need to pause. You need to be careful. Psalm 34, 7 and 8. Listen to this great promise. Do we often remember this as we go through this life? This has something to say about supernatural armies. Psalm 34, 7 and 8. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear Him and delivereth them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about. That implies not just the angel of the Lord, but His army. Encamps about those that fear Him. Just as it did with Elisha. May we, we don't need eyes to see it. May we have hearts that believe the promise of God and walk in boldness. As we'll see in the next chapter of Revelation, when we're called to a purpose, when we're called to a testimony by God, we are invulnerable until the time when our testimony is finished. And when the testimony is finished, it's simply a homegoing. The world may rejoice. It may see a horrible death. It may see victory. But what we see is an ushering into the presence of God. That's what we'll talk about in Revelation 11 with God's two special witnesses. So supernatural armies, God's armies are not without precedent in Scripture. But... There are also demonic and devilish supernatural entities that are not without precedent. We learn a lot about this in the book of Daniel. 
Daniel teaches us that supernatural armies and principalities are actually behind earthly armies and governments. Let's go to the book of Daniel. Daniel goes hand in hand with Revelation as a prophetic book. You cannot understand Revelation or interpret it properly without understanding the promises made to Israel in the same context in the book of Daniel. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. Thy people is Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to the same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. This is about talking about the tribulation. In the tribulation, Michael will stand up for Israel to protect her. And we'll see this when the beast tries to destroy Israel and isn't able to totally wipe her out. So, Michael is the, is the captain of the, of the children of Israel. The spiritual captain. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel is praying and seeking the Lord in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. He's seeking the Lord and there is no answer for quite some time. In chapter 10, verse 13, finally, an angel comes to him in verse 12 and says, Fear not, from the very day you set your heart to understand and to chasten yourself, your words were heard. So from the very day you start praying, your words were heard. And now I am come as an answer. But then in verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in twenty days. So this is an angel sent to Daniel who was withstood by a prince of Persia, a demonic or, or, or a, an evil uh, angelic being. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia or to fight the kings of Persia. The kings of Persia here are not the human kings, but the devil kings behind the human entities and that army there. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. So here you had a, an army of Satan trying to hamper revelation concerning the people of Israel going to Daniel. Because Satan not only hates the church, he hates Israel. Okay? Chapter 10, verse 20. After this revelation is given, the angel departs and says to Daniel, Now I will return to fight with the prince of Persia. So you have an angelic army fighting a satanic army. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. So there was a demonic entity or principality behind the kingdom of Greece that would later come and replace the kingdom of Persia. But I will show thee that which is noted in the Scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael your prince. Okay? Jesus is not Michael the archangel. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses try to say and use these verses. No, this is, this is talking about Satan's attempts to destroy Israel and prevent the prophet from laying out history written aforetime. I think verse 21 here is kind of interesting because what the angel is going to tell Daniel in terms of what these visions and dreams mean, it is said here that it is already noted in the Scripture of truth. Now these things haven't been written at that time by Daniel. They're written down later and we have Daniel, the Scripture of Truth. But what this angel says is that what Daniel is going to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit already exists. It's already the Scriptural Truth. Daniel's just a, an instrument to put it on paper. So the Scripture existed as we have it before the prophets and the apostles wrote it down. What do we, how do we know? What does Psalm 119.89 say? Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. So just as Jesus Christ was pre-eternal, so was the Word of God. In Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh. Through the prophets and the apostles who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Word became tangible for us to read. 
So here we have things that Daniel would later write down spoken of as already in existence and as the spirit as the scripture of truth. I find that very interesting. Just a side note. So, there are supernatural armies, invisible armies, invisible to the naked eye that are in scripture, angelic armies and satanic or demonic armies. So, I believe that's what we have here with the sixth trumpet judgment. Now, some people say in Revelation 9, John sees an army of 200 million horsemen, and then he describes these very strange horses and their riders. He talks about fire and brimstone and tails of serpents that bite. And a lot of people look at that and say, you know, John is describing modern warfare. And that this 200 million man army is just an army of men from the Orient. And that it's just an army of men. So it's a natural explanation of a supernatural event. In my opinion, that's no different than looking at the plagues of Egypt and trying to explain them by some uh, uh, celestial alignment or some strange plague of normal locusts. No, these were supernatural judgments. And so is the case here in Revelation. When we try to explain the supernatural with the natural, we diminish the glory of God. China could field an army of 200 million, it is said. But this sixth trumpet is a supernatural army. There's nothing in modern warfare that looks like what is described here. Nothing. Okay? And we talked about what they were described to be last week. And the chronology doesn't fit. If we continue to read the rest of Revelation, it tells us one of the vile judgments dries up the Euphrates River to prepare the way of the kings of the east. And that happens later. So the chronology doesn't fit. But is this sixth trumpet judgment the supernatural army behind a natural army that will come? Preparing the way thereof. That's what was happening in the book of Daniel. So yes, it could be tied to an army of the kings of the east that will later come and be gathered at Armageddon where Christ will return. So things happen in the spiritual so that the natural pieces on the chessboard are moved into the proper places to affect checkmate. Mm -hmm. And God is behind. He's the ultimate chess player. Here, the sixth trumpet, we have a supernatural army of fallen angels, a fiery cavalry that kills a third of mankind. The sixth vial, if you turn to Revelation 16 verse 12, says, the sixth angel poured out his vial. Remember, the seventh trumpet is the seven vials of God's wrath. Just like the seventh seal is the seven trumpets, which also includes the seven vials. So at this point, with the sixth trumpet, the scroll is completely open. Because the seventh seal was open and it introduced the trumpets. So that book, which was big and sealed with seven souls, is, uh, scrolls is open. That's going to be key when we get to the next chapter. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. The great Euphrates river is a barrier to an eastern army, for an eastern army to march into the Middle East or Israel. Just like the reason why Nepal doesn't need a huge military and a modern air force or arsenal to prevent a Chinese invasion. The reason why India doesn't have to station huge amounts of troops on its border to resist a Chinese invasion, something that has been a threat for a long time, is they've got the best protection there is, and that's the Himalayan mountains. Okay? The Chinese are the one that affected the funding that built the road from Kathmandu to the Tibetan border. But getting an army through those mountains and into the Gangetic River Plains of, of, of India, very difficult. Rivers and mountains are a barrier to armies. But when mountains fall and rivers dried up, the way is opened. And that's what happens with the sixth vial. The Euphrates is dried up. With the sixth trumpet, uh, angels bound in the Euphrates are loose. So there is a tie there. And so I think this sixth trumpet judgment 
is a supernatural army that goes ahead of a big army that has an important place in Armageddon. You see, Antichrist will rule the world, and for a time, all will follow him. But then there will be those that begin to sense uh, his grab for power as something not good, and they will begin to turn. And tidings will trouble him out of the south and the east, it says in the book of Daniel. And so there would naturally, it would naturally follow that the oriental nations would rebel and send an army to fight him. And God's working behind all of that. Because right after the sixth vial, we're told that three unclean spirits like frogs go out into the world to deceive and gather the armies at a place called Armageddon. And we'll talk about that later. So the sixth trumpet judgment is not only a horrible infernal destruction put upon this earth, but it also serves to prepare the way for the ultimate end, and that is at a place called Megiddo, Armageddon. And it could be that this sixth trumpet judgment, where do we get the third of a world's population? It could be that this supernatural army targets man-made armies to get them out of the way so that this eastern army could later march. Could be. You know, uh, a supernatural army overthrowing or destroying a few armies the size of the Syrian host, the Assyrian host there in 2 Kings, you're going to start tallying up a lot of deaths. And so this is all tied together and it's all for the sovereign purpose of God. When I think about the sixth seal judgment, when I try to visualize it, this may be kind of corny and cheesy, but I don't know how many of you have seen uh, the Lord of the Rings movies. Okay, In the third one, in the, in the, in the Return of the King, uh, the king is able to call upon this army of the dead which failed to fulfill an oath in their lifetime. And they would be free if they would help him. They had promised to help the king of Gondor years ago, whatever, whatever. Well, anyway, this army of the dead sweeps over the hordes that are... Uh, uh, besieging the city, just sweeps over and slaughters them. And it's almost as if these enemies don't even know what hit them. And that's kind of the uh, imagery I have when I think about this army commanded by four fallen angels out of the Euphrates, this, uh, this uh, supernatural cavalry sweeping a path across the planet and destroying all that is there. The sixth trumpet judgment. They get progressively worse. God's wrath is full, white hot, and it will be poured out. Something with which we should somberly consider with soberness. Now, verse 20 and 21 are kind of a summary of the entire uh, of chapter um, 8 and 9. They kind of summarize chapter 8 and 9. They're a summary of all the trumpet judgments as well as the seal judgments because it's all linked. And I think in these last two verses of chapter 9 we see an astounding picture of human depravity. Man is not basically good. Man is depraved. And here we see it. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their fornication nor of their thefts. Man is hell-bent on rebellion against God. doesn't matter what dispensation in which he exists whether it's in a state of innocence in the Garden of Eden, whether it's in a state of facing divine wrath as here with these trumpet judgments, man will always rebel. Even when man is under the authority of a physical King Jesus who rules with an iron hand and men have seen the consequences of rebellion, they will still rebel. That is our nature here. Revelation 9, 20 and 21 says just as much about human depravity, in my opinion, as Romans chapter 3. An astounding picture. Now remember, 
We've had quite a few judgments poured out upon the earth at this point. We've had the sixth seal judgments. Man-made peace, the rise of Antichrist, war, economic collapse, tragic death that destroys a fourth of the world's population. Okay? We've had the martyrdom or the testimony of the martyrs guaranteeing the wrath of God. We've had a nuclear holocaust with the sixth seal. The transition between the first and second half of the tribulations. Then we have the trumpet judgments. Mother nature is attacked. Hail and fire mingled with blood. Military might is destroyed through volcanic cataclysm. Cities are wiped out as a result of fresh water supplies tainted with meteoric cataclysm. The calendar is messed up. Personal schedules when a third of the day and night are literally screwed up. We've had infernal torment by demons that last five months. The first woe. The second woe, infernal destruction by fallen angels in which a third of the men that remained are killed. More than a half of the world's population has been destroyed, yet mankind remains unrepentant. Who do you think of from the Old Testament who remained unrepentant in the face of God's judgments? Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a type of mankind in these days. A hardened heart. Now, I'm sure many in these days will cry, shed tears, and call out to God and gather in the shells of former churches where the remnant has gone on to be with the Lord, yet it's not repentance. My friends, tears and emotion are not repentance. Turn to 2 Corinthians for a moment. I hope I'm not boring you all today. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 defines biblical repentance versus earthly or worldly sorrow. Paul says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry. Being sorry is not repentance. But that you sorrowed to repentance. Sorrow ought to lead to repentance. It's not repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. So Paul is referring to his rebuke of them and the sin that was going on in the church in 1 Corinthians. And what did the Corinthians do? They sorrowed unto repentance. Then verse 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. There's sorrow of the world and godly sorrow. I didn't intend to hurt you is not repentance. I didn't mean to is not repentance. Okay? <clears throat> repentance is not, I'm going to quit trying to please people. That's not repentance. Repentance is not failing to commit and then later giving up some lip service, but yet refusing to finish the commitment. That's not repentance. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly tears. Worldly emotions. Songs that raise goosebumps on the arm in churches on Sunday mornings and cause people to come to the altar and cry, but yet they go right back to where they were before on Monday morning. These things do not affect repentance. Revival services that involve sawdust and tents and preachers who can make you laugh and can preach hard things to make genuine Christians doubt their salvation. These things don't affect repentance. They affect godly sorrow. There's a big difference. Repentance doesn't make excuses. Repentance is not regretted. And re repentance results in making right. Not with the mouth. But when action is required, making right what was wrong. And repentance affects unity and restoration, not separation. What we will probably there will probably be a whole lot of worldly sorrow and fear in the days of tribulation. Yet men will be unrepented. Unrepented. The fruit of repentance is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of godly sorrow is continued sin. Okay? 
Don't say you pray to God every day and that you tell God you're sorry and you just, I trust God for everything, but you live as if God doesn't exist outside those times of emotion. That's not repentance. What do we have here with unrepentant men in the days of these judgments? We have continued idolatry. And we have continued um, immorality. Continued idolatry and continued immorality. An astounding picture of human depravity. The rest of the men that were not killed by these plagues, the seals and the trumpets, repented not of the works of their hands that they should, wor should not worship devils and idols of gold, and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. These men worship devils. And then you see the payback from the devils themselves. You worship the devils, and then what do they do? Fifth trumpet judgment, they torment you for five months. Sixth trumpet judgment, they destroy or kill a third of the world's population, and yet men continue to worship them. Amazing. When you look at the theology of Hinduism and Buddhism and you see the entities and the devils and the principalities that these people go out of their way to worship and to appease, and yet these principalities and powers continue to torment them and oppress them and tempt them and deceive them, the people still worship them. I did get to read a very interesting book written by a man who was saved out of Hinduism. There's actually a Hindu population a significant population of Hindus on an island in the Caribbean. I think it's, maybe it's Trinidad, right off the coast of South America. But there was a young man that was raised in the home. His father was a well-known Hindu guru. And he was supposed to succeed him. And he was being pampered and all of these things, making him ready to take this very influential position in Hinduism. But as he was growing up, it confounded him one day when he went, he had had this cow that he treated as a god and he nourished it and fed it and groomed it and took care of it and did everything in his power to care for this cow. And he said one day he went out to take him some food and the cow looked at him with these eyes and then charged him and tried to gore him. And that was the moment that God did something in his life because he's like, I've been serving this cow my whole life and it tried to kill me. What, what, what the heck? And so then God put some Christian people in his life and he came to the Lord. And he wrote a book about his testimony. But his eyes were open. But those that fall into idolatry will still worship the very devils that torment and destroy them because their heart is hardened and they are unrepentant. The Psalms in many places talk about idols that can neither see nor hear nor talk, and yet men fashion them with their hands and bow down to them. How foolish. But the Lord made the heavens. The God of Israel is no idol. He's the Creator. To worship anything but Him is damnable sin that must be repented of. Whether it's an idol made of gold or stone, whether it's the work of men's hands, there's a lot of things today that aren't statues that are the work of men's hands that we worship. Some of them are tangible. Some of them are intangible. Ideas and philosophies are the works of men's hands and minds and their idols if we put them above God. A sports team, a pigskin, or a leather round ball put through an iron hoop can be an idol fashioned by men's hands that we put above the Lord. Things that call themselves Christian can be idols fashioned with our hands. A lot of times the Jesus... The modern day church touts and worshiped is fashioned by the hands of men, an idol that people worship without repentance. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the idols worshiped by the Gentiles, worshiped by these false religions, aren't idols per se, they're devils. They're devils, they're demons. The Hindu pantheon is not a figment of the imagination. They are devils that are being worshipped. The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice unto.
to devils. And then we see in these judgments how the devils pay back those that worship them. How terrible, how unthinkable, how blind men unrepentant in their idolatry. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, the last thing that John says to little children, believers, is something we should heed. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. The church today has failed to keep itself from idols. Failed. Colossians 3.5 defines something we take lightly as idolatry. What sin is the same as idolatry? Colossians 3.5 Covetousness. Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, fornication, uncleanness, this all has to do with sexual sin. Inordinate affection is a, is a, is a reference to homosexuality and the inordinate affection that goes with it. Evil concupiscence is extreme self-serving lust that often goes with homosexuality as well. And covetousness, which is idolatry. We often talk about how lust is adultery of the heart. Hatred is murder of the heart. This is, this is often quoted by people preaching on the streets myself. But we need to also point out that covetousness is idolatry of the heart. When we covet things that are not ours, when we desire them above the things of God, we are idol worshipers. And that is the essence at what John was warning the believers about. Keep yourselves from idols. Covetousness. All of these things will characterize these last days and society in these last days. Continued idolatry and continued immorality. I'm going to end here. But let's just read the last verse of chapter 9. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. When you don't put God in His proper place... When you turn to idols and reject the God of this world, uh, not the God of this world, the God of creation, the God of Israel, when you reject Him, it leads to immorality. You cannot understand love for the brethren or love for your fellow man without love for God first. And so an atheist that touts morality and love for fellow humans is a fool. He can't have it. He can't know it. He can't do it. Why do these men not repent of their murders, their sorceries, and their fornication and their theft? Because they haven't repented of their idolatry. You can't have victory over sin until you see the idolatry in your life and repent of it first. These behaviors here will run rampant in the last days. Murder, sorcery, fornication, and theft. I dare say they characterize America even now. I want to talk a little bit about these. We know what murder is. We see murder running rampant today. Human life has been cheapened. Okay, We see it not only at the hands of ISIS barbarians, but we see it in the comfortable, uh, nice-looking abortuaries that we find all over America. Murder! Yes. Terminating the unborn is murder. And we see nothing wrong with that. Murder is rampant. It happens on our streets. Black on black. Black on white. White on black. Gentile on Jew. Jew on Gentile. Everywhere. Murder. But then I want to talk about sorcery and fornication. And I'll leave you with this. The word here in the Greek, I don't normally like to pronounce Greek words, but that we translate, that's translated sorceries is pharmakeia. Pharmakeia. What English word do you think comes from that Greek word pharmakeia? Pharmacy. It has to do with medicine or drugs. 
there is a direct tie between drug use and the spirit world. There's a direct tie between demonic possession, oppression, and the spirit world. It's tied together. It's the same word that gives us pharmacy and the same word that gives us sorcery. I knew a young man when I was in college that had been in terrible addiction to heroin and PCP and hard drugs. And he described the things he would see when he was in these bouts of drug use. And the things he would see would often match some of the things described here about the demonic in Revelation. And he was convinced that what drugs were doing was opening his eyes to the spirit world. That they were a bridge. And I think the etymology of this word suggests that. Then we get into fornication. The Greek word for fornication is porneia. Where do you think what English words come from porneia? Porn. Pornography. Okay, Fornication is all sorts of sexual sin. And yes, it includes homosexuality. Yes, it includes sex out of marriage. Yes, it includes adultery and extramarital affairs. Yes, it includes these things. Yet, even now in America, we say there's nothing wrong with any of this. So I want to study these a little bit and talk about what thefts is referring to as well. So we'll do that next week. And then we'll get into chapter 10, which is our second major parenthesis in the book of Revelation. And I'm, I'm excited about chapter 10 and 11 because they go together and they um, have something to say about Jesus Christ, the title deed of the earth, and about some special witnesses that God has appointed for the last days so that the gospel will go out and their testimony can strengthen us here in our time.